But here we have Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as spoken long ago through your servants. We all long to fully experience your grace and peace. And may your spirit today give your servant Andrew the words you would have us hear and <coughs> use them to transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, good morning. Glad Bob could handle that scripture reading. I was a little worried about that. <laughs> Looking forward to diving into Ephesians. Um, why don't I start with food? Food is really important. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Uh, important, enjoyed. I was reminded of that this summer as we uh, traveled to a number of different places. Uh, we spent some time in Paris and really enjoyed the baguettes and all of the pastries and all of the different things that Paris has to offer with regards to cuisine. I even had uh, some steak tartare there that was really uh, lovely. Uh, London food is okay. Uh, it's, you got to eat the Indian food in London to really get some flavor. Everything else is a little bland. Uh, no offense, Alan, if you're here. Uh, but um, uh, then we were in Peru, or I was in Peru, and had a number of interesting and somewhat exotic dishes to our palate. I had uh, some roasted alligator uh, along the shores of the Amazon River. I had some fish that I had never even heard of before. Uh, those were both delicious. Uh, Peru has a very unique sort of national delicacy. Uh, it's called cuy. Does anybody know what cuy is? Cuy uh, is roasted guinea pig. And uh, it very much retains its form as it comes to you on the plate. Uh, it's like spread eagled and fried. And uh, I, I kind of thought it tasted like duck. It, it was a little bit rich, uh, kind of greasy. Uh, it wasn't altogether bad. A lot of work, though, you know, for, for those poor guinea pigs uh, to give up their life. One of the things that we've, re we've realized over the years, especially doing refugee foster care, is just how important food is to a culture. Uh, so, you know, a number of times you have people come into their, your home or even folks that are at school and they're away from their culture and, and you ask them, what is the hardest part or what do you really miss? Uh, and almost always it is the food. Uh, it's, it's these delicacies, it's the tradition that we've grown up with that just tastes like home, feels like home. It is the thing that really helps unite and connect and, and all of those things. And maybe you can relate to that. You're thinking of certain foods. It doesn't even have to be the best food, but when you eat it, you know that you are home. 
In many ways, that is what the book of Ephesians is like. It is like the very best food from home. That as you go through this book and you begin to partake of delicacy after delicacy, you are drawn in and you say, yes, I am home. Ephesians is a little bit different than a lot of the other books that Paul has written. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Ephesus and what that was like and what that meant. We read a little bit of it uh, earlier this morning. Uh, but Ephesians is written not from the perspective of being in Ephesus. Uh, it's written from the perspective of heaven. Uh, Paul is seeking to, you know, fill the table, laden your palate uh, with the truths that are born in heaven. One writer puts it this way. He says, Ephesians is a letter in which the apostle looks at the Christian life, salvation, from the vantage point of the heavenly places. He's looking down at the great panorama of salvation and redemption from that particular aspect. His great concern here was to give the Ephesians and to all others to whom the letter is addressed a panoramic view of this wondrous and glorious work of God in Jesus Christ. And I was reflecting on that. My own thought was, I need this. You know, I, I, I need to have that kind of view. I, I need to be lifted up above the morass of our life, you know, all of the, the different things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, the health concerns, the financial concerns, the political concerns, the concerns about who my friends are, the concerns about how many likes, you know, my social media posts will get, all of these different things. I, I, need, to, I need to get a view that helps me get above that and see that, a view that can not only satisfy my palate, uh, but a view that can help anchor me in the midst of this ever-changing reality. And so what we're going to find, especially in Ephesians 1 to 3, is we're going to find truth after truth in which God, uh, through the Apostle Paul, is seeking to anchor our souls. Truths like how God has made us together, alive together with Christ. How God has raised us together with Christ. Has got, how God has seated us together with Christ. How uh, we are citizens together with the saints. How we're joined together with other parts of God's building. How we're being built together uh, with others into the body of Christ, how we are sharers with each other in the promises, uh, how we're joined uh, into the body of Christ, held together uh, through the Spirit. All of these come in just the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. One person has said, you know, if you were to divide Ephesians, and some of you probably know this already, uh, the first three chapters really expound this idea of what it means to be in Christ. A lot of those things that I've just mentioned. Uh, and then verse chapters 4 to 6 tell us what it means to be in Christ in Ephesus or what it means to be in Christ in Grand Rapids, in our local context. So you have much more of the imperatives. What do we do? 
Chapters one to three, the indicatives, who are we? You know, what are the promises? Chapters four to six, uh, how do we then live out? So we are gonna spend the next three months uh, just going through the first three chapters. It's incredibly dense. You know, next week we'll start in, in chapter three, or in verse three of chapter one, uh, chapter or verse 3 all the way through verse 14 is actually only one sentence in Greek. I'm sure I'll say that again next week. Uh, And I'm sure some of you already know that. Uh, And then the next sort of 15 to 26 is another sentence. So Paul is just overcome with all of these truths of God. and, And he just, he can hardly contain himself. And it's just run on after run on after run on because he is so taken by these delicacies that God has for us to enjoy as we come to his feast. So that's where we're going. Uh, I wanna just start though with this introduction because we read through these things so fast. Uh, It's an interesting exercise if you want to go through all of the different epistles and read these introductions, kind of notice the the subtle little changes. Uh, You can learn a good bit by going through that. But today I want to walk through this just in a couple of different ways. As we come to this book of Ephesians, uh, helping us to understand it is this idea that we have a bunch of unlikely people uh, with an unbelievable story from an unmatched source. So that's, that's where we're going this morning as we walk through this introduction. Let's just start with the unlikely people. Three categories here. We have Paul, we have the Ephesians, and then we have saints. Uh, this description of the people. Paul, as you remember, starts off here. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. That is a really unlikely situation because Paul did not start out as a promoter of the Christian gospel. He didn't start out as a promoter of the way. He started out as a persecutor of the way. He started out breathing out murderous threats against those who would dare to follow Christ. Paul, of course, wasn't Paul then. He was Saul. He was named after a Jewish king who was known for his gifts, who was known for his good looks, who was known for his military prowess, uh, who was very proud in and of himself. Uh, But Paul is no longer that Saul. He's no longer proud. He's no longer standing on his own gifts. Now he is Paul. Uh, which is actually a Latin term, and it means small. Small Paul. Uh, He's gone from being proud Saul, uh, breathing out murderous threats against the Jews, to being small Paul, uh, an apostle, humble, uh, sent out by the Lord in order to be a promoter of the way. He is perhaps the unlikeliest emissary of God's grace that there ever could have been. And the the Christians knew it too. They were really tentative around Paul at the beginning. They're like, eh, I don't know about this guy. Just a minute ago, he was trying to throw me in jail and now you're saying that he's on our side, he is promoting. But of course, uh, Paul proved himself, and it's not really that Paul proved himself, but God's grace became evident in Paul's life. 
as he went from town to town, as he was beaten, as he was stoned, as he was persecuted himself for this gospel, you began to see that Paul's ministry was one of authenticity. It came out of a place of deep change, deep conversion. Uh, and so the things that he's talking about, these esoteric truths, they're, they're not just abstract philosophical ideas for Paul. They actually changed his life. Uh, and he realized that in terms of his being in the world, it was okay to be small Paul because he had a big God. The second unlikely group of people are the Ephesians. It's kind of interesting. Ephesians is a, um, is, uh, it's well attested that, that this letter came to the Ephesians. Uh, Ephesus was a place that Paul knew well. He was there for about two and a half years. Uh, we're told about his teaching ministry there, transition from the synagogue to the lecture, lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, thing that's sort of interesting about the book is there's very few personal references in Ephesians, um, that, which is kind of surprising. I mean, he had spent as much time there as he spent anywhere else, and yet it's least, you know, it's the least personal of, you know, if you compare it with Colossians or Timothy or any of these other books, they're, they're much more personal. Part of the reason for that is I don't think that Paul wrote this solely for the church in Ephesus. Uh, in fact, in some of the manuscripts that we have, uh, that, that place where it says in Ephesus is left blank. Uh, and, and so it's likely that this was a circular letter uh, that was meant for the whole church. So the idea that it came to the Ephesians is fine because it certainly did. And there were uh, some copies of the letter that did say, you know, to the church in Ephesus. And, and we accept that. And it's helpful for us to look at the background to the Ephesians. But on the other hand, it's important that we recognize that this is for all people. Uh, because all people, ordinary people, different places, different times, different cultures, we all need to hear the perspective that Paul is giving us here, this panoramic perspective that comes from God. It's helpful for us, too, I think, to stop and to just remember who the Ephesians were. Uh, we saw it in the, the section that we read, and thank you to everybody who who read there, you had a harder job than Bob did this morning. Uh, so uh, especially some of those names were tricky, weren't they? Uh, Aristarchus and all of these others. Uh, but here we have a picture of a church that, first of all, was, was very small, very weak. Theologically, it took them some time to kind of catch up to what was going on uh, in the redemptive history of salvation at that time. Uh, we see that it was not well attested. You know, Paul's tradition or his pattern was to go to the synagogue first. Uh, and then depending on how things went to the Jews, because the gospel was for the Jews first, then the Gentiles, he would go other places. Synagogue did not go well. Uh, these people did not want to hear what Paul had to say. They did not accept his testimony, and so he was run out of the synagogue rather early and rather vehemently. Uh, he then went and set up shop in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, Ephesians, 
uh, or Ephesus was a, a place that was kind of central to a lot of different places in Asia. And we see he had an opportunity to minister to a lot of different people who would come. They would hear him teach there. They would take the word back to where they were. So much so that uh, the scriptures say in Acts 19 that all Asia heard of Christ. It's one of the reasons why we recognize that all doesn't always mean all. It doesn't mean every single person heard the gospel, but it means that there is this wide reach. You know, all sorts of people from all sorts of places heard the gospel of Jesus. But of course, that had its downside uh, because as people were being converted to the way, they were being converted from Artemis worship or Diana worship, and that was a, a major, uh, major part of the culture in Ephesus. And so they were stopping to buy the, the trinkets and all of the things that went on at the temple to Diana or Artemis, one of the, the Roman Greek goddesses, uh, goddess of virility, goddess of war, uh, provision, all of those things uh, were cutting into their trade. And Demetrius, he got together all these silversmiths and they had a riot. Uh, most people didn't even know what they were rioting about, but it was very, very tense there for a moment. I love Paul though. He's like, this is awesome. Everybody's together. Let me go speak to this crowd. And his friends are like, no, Paul, that's probably not a, a good idea. Uh, cooler heads prevail. People go home. Uh, and uh, Paul leaves Ephesus. I, I just give that all for you to say is that these people really, we can connect with them, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're coming at it from sort of a, a, um, a holy background or a pagan background. Uh, we recognize that it's hard. You know, the Jews, they, they weren't ready to accept all the claims of Christianity. And some of us come from a religious background. We're happy to be religious. We're happy to be moral. We're happy to be upright people. But when it comes to the claims of Christianity, uh, to uh, dying to yourself in order that you might live to Christ, that cuts a little close to the bone. And we're not always so sure that that is exactly where we want to live. Others of us are coming from a place of pure secularism where we love our consumeristic uh, you know, opportunities that we have. We, we love the wealth. Did you hear them talk about the wealth that they had received from their silver trade? Uh, we love the gods and the goddesses that we give our life to, success and uh, decency and all of these different things. We, we love all of these things, and it's hard for us. We become rebellious and riotous uh, when we are pressed. And, and so this letter, where Paul is giving us a different picture, uh, it came to the Ephesians, but it, it comes to us as well as those who can relate to the Ephesians. And God is inviting us to something that is bigger, that is, yeah, it tastes a lot better, that is more sustaining in the end. The other thing that's really unlikely here is that these people would be called saints. Uh, this is so true in, in so many of Paul's epistles. I, I always am struck by that when I read the epistle to the Corinthians. Uh, Corinth, a church with all kinds of problems. 
And uh, Paul is just constantly laying that out. But he starts by addressing them saints. To the saints that are in Corinth, to the saints that are in Ephesus, to the saints that are in Grand Rapids at Christ's church. You know, how is it that Paul can say that? Does that mean that we've, uh, a, you know, completed some, you know, heroic tasks? Does that mean that we have done something epically that will set us apart and the church can now venerate us as old? Some of us, uh, you know, think about saints in that sort of way. But that's not how Paul is using the term here. Paul is using the term, he's saying, you're, you're the holy ones. You're the ones who have been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been made clean. It's not about what you have done, and we're going to emphasize that again and again throughout the book of Ephesians. It's not what you have done, but it's what God has done in you. He's washed you. He's made you clean. He's set you apart for his service. You no longer belong to the riotous, consumeristic, idolatrous crowd of the Ephesian marketplace, but you belong to Christ. You are his. You are blood-bought and owned by the beloved. And so we start this and we say, this is the most unlikely introduction of all. Paul to the saints in Ephesus. It could only be a wonderful story. You know, it, it can only be something that is truly amazing that would allow those three things to be true. And indeed it is. It, it's a story of grace and peace. It's, a, it's an unbelievable story. Some of you know this probably already, uh, but grace and peace is a greeting that some people think Paul may have coined this uh, because what it does is it brings together uh, two greetings, the, the greetings of the Greeks, uh, charis, grace, charisteo, uh, and the greetings of the Jews, shalom, peace, uh, and brings them together. And, and one of the things that we learn about this is, is Paul isn't speaking just to one particular group of people. He's not you know, you're the educated, you're the, you're the Gentiles, you're the, you're the Jews, you're the whites, you're the black. He, he, this is for everybody. Uh, grace and peace. You know, this message of salvation, this message that God is bringing to us is one that is comprehensive, it's inclusive, whatever word you want to use there. Uh, it is a message of grace and peace. Uh, that is for all people, all cultures. You know, so when we come to Revelation 7, we're not surprised when we see every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who are bringing homage to the Lamb because we recognize that is the story that we're in. God is coming to all of us, uh, no matter what our background is, no matter where we've come from, and He is inviting us to experience these two just wonderful thoughts, grace and peace. Grace and peace. I was thinking about that this week. I, I read an article, I think it was in Atlantic. Uh, it was about how this generation uh, growing up now is the first generation in a while uh, whose prospects 
are to do worse financially than their parents. Uh, so, you know, all along, the American dream has been work hard and you will better yourself. And, and so now that American dream uh, seems a bit of a chimera. It seems that it is being called into question. Is that, is that really true? Like, can I just work hard and, and better my station in life? Statistics are showing that that is not a sure thing anymore. And of course, you know, what arises out of this? What arises out of this are things like um, anxiety. You know, how, how, if I had a certain way of living or standard of living as I was growing up and I don't have that standard of living now, like, you know, what does that mean about me? A sense of self, a sense of worthlessness. How will I live? That, that sense of anxiety. Like, all of these things are, are, are very real. And, and, of course, you don't have to be of a certain generation to recognize, you know, just the anxiety that comes from living in our day-to-day -day world with its politics, with our aging process and what it means for our bodies and, and how we will pass from this life into the next. We, we all face those things. But I was thinking about these things in light of what the, the promise of the gospel is. The promise of the gospel is grace and peace. Right at the very heart of what we need is the provision uh, from our Lord. Grace and peace to you. And I've mentioned this before, I'm sure we'll mention again. Whenever Paul closes his letters, he doesn't just say grace and peace to you, but he says grace and peace with you. Everywhere you go, we have this promise of grace and peace. So. So what is it? Uh, Frederick Beekner passed away a couple weeks ago. I've been sort of had him on my mind. Uh, he has this wonderful little dictionary of Christian terms. And he says, you know, oftentimes they, they lose their meaning because they've been used so often. But grace is one of those terms, he says, that has really kept its distinctiveness. He says, grace is something that you can never get but you can only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is a grace and so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. Have you ever tried to love somebody? A crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. There's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing that you have to do. The grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It is for you that I created 
the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. But maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. There's so much in this concept of grace, and we're going to be walking through this sort of week by week. But if anything, you know, grace and peace, they, they are a cup of cold water on a blistering hot day when we need something that is going to give us hope in the midst of this world where there is nothing else promised that the world can deliver. Lastly, I want you to note the source of this uh, unbelievable story. It is, of course, a story that is coming to us from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts it out in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. There, there is nothing that happens in this story without God. Uh, your story of the Christian life uh, has so little to do with us. You know, so often we want to think about our response. So often we want to focus on what we have to do. But the story of the gospel is what God has done. You know, Paul is an apostle not because he got it right finally. Paul was an apostle because God knocked him down on the road to Damascus. And, and God came into his life and arrested him. And he said, as hard as you are persecuting the church... You are now going to become a promoter of this Christian faith. And the book of Ephesians is all about what God does. In this story, God does the following. He blesses us in Christ. We are chosen in Christ, destined through Christ. He's bestowed grace on us in the beloved. He's redeemed us, forgiven us lavished grace on us, made known the mystery of his will to us, set forth his will in Christ, marked us with the Spirit, raised Christ from the dead, seated Christ in the heavens, put all things under Christ's feet, made him the head of the church. He's loved us greatly, made us alive with Christ, raised us with Christ, seated us with Christ in heaven, saved us by his grace, created us anew in Christ, gave us good works to do, brought us near in Christ, built us into his temple, commissioned Paul as the steward of the gospel, revealed the mystery of the gospel, acted according to his eternal purpose, called us, gave us grace for ministry, and made us light in the Lord. All of those things are what God has done. And this is what Paul wants us to recognize. He comes to each one of us today and he says, I, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know that you can be numbered with the riotous Ephesians or the hard-hearted Jews that have reflect, rejected the gospel. But look at what I have done. I have done everything necessary for you. He is our God. He is our Father. He, he is not just this idea of a supreme being, but he relates to us as one who intimately loves us from God our Father.
and the Lord Jesus Christ. In a minute, we are going to come to the table. It's the table, if you will, as Paul puts it, of the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And and God invites us this morning as believers who are resting in that to taste and see that it's true and that the Lord is good and, and that there is nothing that you can add to his absolutely finished work because he has lavished grace on us in the beloved. And that's why Paul can say he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a real person who lived and who died. He was a uh, born of Jewish ancestry. He had a name. You know, uh, Christ is, is his office that he holds. He's the anointed one. He is the one who was promised from all eternity, who came in the fullness of time in order that he might give his life as a ransom for many. And he is our Lord. He is the one to whom we owe all of our love to whom we owe all of our allegiance. He is the one who is our head and who gives us our marching orders and who gives us the strength day by day. Brothers and sisters, you're home when you come to Ephesians. Taste that food and and know that these truths speak to the deepest part Uh, of who you are. They, They speak to your deepest longings and they tell you through God our Father that you are home. One more word. And it's for those maybe who are like, wow, that sounds really good, but I'm not sure that I am there yet. There is always a seat at this table. You know, the Jews had that tradition in in Passover where they would always leave an empty chair at the table for a stranger or a visitor because you never know, it might be Elijah coming down the road and uh, we've got to have a seat there. But at God's eternal table, at the feast of the great Paschal Passover lamb, there is always room. There is always room to come to acknowledge your great need of grace and to receive uh, the richest of food. Nothing else will ever satisfy you. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to these few verses, as we come to this book, as we come to our lives, uh, Lord, sometimes we just have to wake up Uh, and and come to our very own lives in this very own place and recognize at at a deepest level what we need is grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would meet us here. So grateful to be here with uh, so many sisters and brothers, friends, uh, a community of broken people, uh, people who relate to the Ephesians more than we would like to admit. 
but Father, we are a people who are at home around your table because we taste the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray now that you would help us to live into this one who is our hope in life and death. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.